Hello and welcome to today's very special fourth episode of Square One with me, Todd Olive, and my co-host and full-time partner in crime at Down to Earth, Manvir Gill. This week, in a first for Square One, I'm delighted to introduce Alistair Fleming, climate reality leader and mentor to our very own Manvir during Climate Reality's global training session in July this year. A very warm welcome to the show, Alistair. I'm sure all of our listeners will agree that hearing a voice that isn't mine or Manvir's will be an absolute treat. Coming up today, we'll be bringing you up to date with the latest in sustainability news from across the world, as well as a special segment on climate education. But first, two major news stories from the last fortnight. Take it away, Manvir. Thank you, Todd. And in our first story, over 3,000 Honduran migrants and asylum seekers entered Guatemala on Thursday, avoiding immigration and health checks. This migrant caravan is one of many over the past two years that have attempted to make the perilous journey to the US in hope of finding jobs and safety, marking a renewed effort since Guatemala opened its borders for the first time in six months. And Guatemalan authorities have, have cracked down, uh, leading to the deportation of the majority of these migrants. And the, the Honduran caravan is unlikely to make it to the US, given that Mexico have deployed their National Guard at the Guatemalan border in an attempt to maintain good relations with US President Donald Trump. And on the eve of the US presidential election and with Joe Biden pledging to raise the refugee cap if elected, this issue is becoming highly political far before any migrants make it to the US border. So the COVID-19 pandemic and the anti-immigrant rhetoric, especially prevalent during the election, leave Hondurans with no options and little hope facing extreme poverty and violence back home. Picking up on that on that political point there, those who are still scarred by the result of the, the 2016 US presidential election, uh, like me, uh, will probably remember that a similar migrant caravan uh, was actually hailed by then Republican candidate Donald Trump as justification for adopting an extremely hard line on the treatment of refugees during, during the campaign, a situation that it's probably fair to say hasn't changed a great deal since. Um, as Manvir says, the, this story really has the potential to become highly significant to the course of this year's presidential elections, now of course less than a month away, with all of the sustainability implications that the election is carrying with it. Though this particular story has perhaps been overshadowed in recent days by, of course, the admission to pres of President Trump to hospital with, uh, with coronavirus. Either way, um, I think everyone will agree this is certainly a story to watch over the next few weeks. Definitely. In our other major news story of the day, in an effort to boost the post-COVID economy, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has promised a radical shape-up of adult education. Speaking at a further education college in Exeter, Mr Johnson promised funding changes that would help end the bogus distinction between academic and vocational learning by offering a fully funded college course to everyone in England over the age of 18 without an A-level or equivalent qualification. Currently, only people under 23 qualify for a fully funded qualification at this level. The move has been made as an explicit response to the COVID crisis, as the government seeks to lay the groundwork for a post-pandemic recovery, and is expected to explicitly target sectors experiencing worker shortages, but potentially lays the groundwork for a variety of schemes addressing social injustice. By setting a precedent for government-funded training for adults, some are optimistic that the move may signal a step towards direct intervention in intergenerational poverty traps, 
where a lack of training and income tra- carries over from one generation to the next, as well as schemes to support workers that may be displaced by the transition to a low-carbon economy. Boris Johnson made it clear, the pandemics exposed the lack of practical skills due to educational shortcomings that have led to a shortage of lab technicians available to process COVID tests. Certainly, practical skills are essential to the functioning of a sustainable society, and one would hope that this move is part of a broader change in the way society places value on vocational courses if we are to achieve a sustainable, low-carbon economy. And on the note of the low-carbon economy, that brings us very nicely to our main segment today on climate education. Uh, We're lucky, as I mentioned earlier, to be joined today by Alistair Fleming, who, like Manvi and myself, has been trained as a climate reality leader by former US Vice President Al Gore. Big thanks for joining us on the show today, Alistair, once again. Now, I understand from uh, from Manvi that you've been on a bit of a journey with climate education yourself. Um, So perhaps you could tell us briefly a little bit about your climate story. Yeah, thank you. And um, I'm very pleased to join you today in your podcast. Um, it's very, it's always good to talk about, uh, ultimately talk about climate change and uh, um, drive action um, and educate people, inform and educate people. But yeah, my, my background is, uh, as I say, it's a journey. Um, well, that's how I describe it when I'm making a presentation um, in terms of uh, I can take myself back to the late 80s. Um, so last century, um, to a point um, where the world itself was beginning to get an understanding of um, of um, how the human activity was really impacting on the health of the cl- of the uh, of the the planet. Um, and back then, obviously, it was through pollution, and there were issues around um, aerosols and the ozone layer. And all, of, and that so it had moved out of the field of academia really into the public consciousness, but there wasn't a great deal of action because it's too complex. And of course, everyone said it's somewhere in the future and it's affecting people somewhere else. It's not affecting me, which still hangs around like a bit of a an excuse. The even even today, you know, twenty five odd years later, to say the least. To say indeed, least. yeah. <laughs> um, so. Although I kind of was would tap into the news um, over the over the next sort of ten years or so, it really didn't drive much action even in me um, until around two thousand, the turn of the century, um, when the Australian government. I was living in Australia at the time, so when the Australian government banned finally banned um, incandescent light bulbs. And dare I say, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. It's like, well, there's something happening here with legislation, um, uh, which is underscored by this need to be more, to reduce your energy consumption. And um, obviously that's all very much in Australia, very much tied to coal burning and fossil fuel uh, energy generation. And I thought, okay, so what is this thing called sustainability? You know, what what is this uh, thing? So I... I then, as a mature student, thought, well, I may as well go and study it because I could read as much about it as I could, but I may not necessarily understand it all. So I went and studied a graduate certificate of sustainability in Melbourne at um, Swinburne, University of Technology. And it was a real eye-opener for me because my background is a, I'm a designer, so I'm my background in terms of systems thinking and processes and you know the notion of uh, sustainable practices 
really didn't exist. It didn't sort of in the world that I was working, it didn't exist at the time. So I thought it's great. I can bring this back into my, the work I do um, and start to have an influence in my industry, um, which was actually a lot harder than I anticipated. <laughs> Excuse me. So then following on from that and starting to get very involved with the local community in terms of uh, sustain, uh, the, it was called the Maston Ranges Sustainable, so, uh, what was it called? The Maston Ranges Sustainability Group with a, a remit of, um, you know, bringing sustainable living practices to the Maston Ranges in Australia, the, my local community. Um, so I could bring, my skills I could bring was to help them host a sustainable living event each year festival um, so we did that over about four or five years and from that um, and from that activity um, Al Gore was bringing his climate reality training to Melbourne in 2014 so I thought that was a great opportunity I put my you know applied for that and yeah I think a little bit to my surprise um, was invited to join the training um, which Interestingly, at the time, so again, it, to me, it was a very another part of my education. It was my opportunity to learn a lot more about the climate crisis or climate change, as it you know was comfortably understood uh, just six years ago. Um, and it uh, it was also at a time in Australia politically where we had a very conservative government that was really wanting to pull the rug from underneath all of the uh, um, um, action that was being taken in terms of, uh, fun, uh, of um, um, financing um, projects for renewable energy. And so it's kind of, there was a sense of doom and gloom um, that some of the presenters from the organisations like the, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not prepared, the uh, Green Clean Energy Finance Corporation is probably the most, uh, most important one, uh, were pretty much thinking they were going to be abolished. And uh, so it was, there, there was already a bit of sense of gloom. But um, Mr. Gore turned up in Australia. He'd had a few behind-the-doors conversations with various cross-party politicians and came out of it with an, influencing um, the government to forestall their plans. So what was a... You know, possibly a dismal training became a very joyful training, and uh, 500 of us became climate reality leaders after the third day, um, which was fantastic. So, moving on, um, I moved back to the UK a few years ago, or with my family, and uh, started to to work um, with again in the voluntary sector locally. Um, and uh, that process has been ongoing. And then obviously the opportunity to become a mentor at the trainings was another opportunity, not just for me to help people become climate reality leaders like cells, but also to learn from you guys as well, because it's, uh, you know, it's always, a, a, you know, everything is a learning exercise. And uh, which brings me now, right now today, where I've stepped into the world of academia again, uh, and are studying uh, global environment and climate change law, um, uh, masters uh, at Edinburgh University. So, 
you know, I've not stopped learning. I've not stopped uh, challenging myself. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about the concept of education is it's not merely an institutionalized um, process that everyone has to go through, but you can choose to, um, you know, keep going with it yourself at any stage in life, I would argue. So, um, yeah, so that's a, a fairly rambling uh, um, little story of my journey. <laughs> A fantastic story, nevertheless. Um, I think one of the, and this this brings us actually nicely on to the the first of the questions that you have seen before. Um, the the I'm what, what, one of the things that that I notice, kind of reading and listening to that story, is that it's you know it spans decades. It's uh, I, I think you started back in the in the nineteen eighties, and obviously the the LLM brings us right up to kind of today. Um, so the, the, the obvious question there is um, kind of in light of the need to achieve a 45% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 for us to have, I think it's a 50% chance of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees C, according to the IPCC. Um, do you think we can keep relying on climate education of, of whatever kind um, to change that trajectory? Um, or is there a point at which... I don't know, do we have to give up on climate education at some point and say, no, we need to take emergency measures? Uh, so a really interesting question. And I think that um, I think there's two two positions I'd like to suggest here. One is in terms of formal, formal education, there are new generations coming through all the time. So there's associate that those generations, not just with their formal education, where you can argue that there isn't enough um, climate crisis education, sustainability uh, education in the curriculum, but if you associate that with what the younger generations are now doing as activists, um, they're not relying now solely on education to learn, um, which is a which is a great thing. And the other thing I think is, although I I sort of my personal development was always self-driven um, it's always encouraging when you know companies corporations uh, institutions use PD opportunities for their staff um, and instead of just going for you know instead of just sending them off to a team building exercises they can send them off to a, a climate reality training for example um, and uh, you know so I think there's there is still a huge amount of scope for education to take a vital role in uh, getting this message across. I think to be more specific about whether it help, it will help, I think the argument about informing and educating is always about not necessarily having a direct effect, but the indirect effect. I mean, we, we really need... Change comes um, when you have a good base in order to demand that change and you know, people will argue about numbers or percentages or whatever to to find those those tipping points so to speak but the change to get to to meet those targets that have been set out in the paris agreement and and uh um and uh the uh, 1.5 um agree um do, um, document sorry losing my head again here my thoughts um, that was uh, released last year the by the IPCC is 
they rely totally on government action, state action, to do that. And the state's not going to do that until the people demand it. And if we can educate enough people, they can make the demands and action will happen quicker. Pick, picking, picking up on that, um, that very last thing you said there, actually, Alistair Manveer. Um, Alistair says, um, if, if, if we can educate the right number of people, who's we, do you think? Who should that be? Who should that be? Well, we'd like to think everyone, right? Anyone who, uh, not just anyone who has an interest, but in those that don't have an interest, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's imperative that they do uh, get to a point where they are also involved in the conversation. But yeah, uh, I, I think this really does go, go back to the idea that um, the younger generation has been uh, kind of tasked almost with not just informing, but raising the uh, the alarm almost for the world and, and, and sort of spurring action. But there, and, and I think something that's come up time and time again uh, in, the, in the Fridays for Future protests is that um, there's, there's a certain awareness amongst young people that the actual uh, action that they can take, say at state level, is is limited at best because they're not the ones in the positions to actually enforce change. And so I think there is definitely some annoyance, uh, is perhaps a uh, weak term to use, but at, at the fact that really this needs to be uh, sort of commandeered by everyone. And that's not something we're seeing so strongly at the moment. We're definitely seeing pockets of activism, pockets of people saying this needs to be done and good examples of leadership, but we don't just need examples. We need that to be more systemic. And that's certainly an issue at this point that we haven't got the answers to. Mm, climate change needs to be the new Gangnam style is what I'm hearing <laughs> from you there. Uh, I certainly wouldn't mind um... if that was the case. <laughs> Okay, um, moving moving on a little bit then, um, and we're, but, but yeah, moving on a little bit then to to certainly a a slightly bigger sphere. Um, Alistair, do you think climate awareness cli through climate education is sufficient, or does that need to be built alongside awareness of kind of parallel concepts like climate justice, uh, neo colonialism, development theory? Um, Thing, things like that and 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 if so can that be done in a way that isn't beholden to this kind of culture ward that we see um looming over over issues of justice like these um sort of really across the um across the anglosphere uh yes it can i think it's very important um and I, again it's a very new awareness um certainly uh for me this notion of of the connectivity of social justice um climate change, biodiversity, we've always, again, in many ways, that there's you use the word new colonialism, is that I think there's always been a sense, certainly uh, through the mechanisms that have been set up through um, the UN, etc., over the years, of this kind of benevolence of developed, Western developed nations um, being required through the obligations of these agreements to um, support developing nations with their actions on um, tackling the climate change. And so that has always been a, a very sort of comfortable place for Western nations to be. 
But when the Western nations, the people in the nations themselves are starting to raise issues of, of social injustice through race, through um, social exclusion um, and other areas, the, the, the connectivity is there as well. And, I, you know, and I, one of the things that we have battled for years in, in, in the environmental movements is this notion that you get to a point where you feel you're always talking to um, yourselves, you know, talking to the converted. And when you talk to people or hear from people outside of that community, so to speak, you know, they, they have a very, um, themselves have a very preconceived idea about environmental movement being the, uh, you know, it, it's really, it's the middle class. Generally, it's uh, white, middle class, educated, um, and it's their, their it's their remit. It's not the remit of people in in um, in uh, um, less uh, less privileged communities, and so that's a, a huge barrier that I think is important to get over. Is to um, and we're trying. I'm working with a couple of climate reality leaders. We're starting to work with Bristol City Council, for example, to do just that to take the conversation into those um, communities. And uh, as we've sort of agreed at this point, is we're not going in to educate them. What they want is them for, to educate us. We're going to listen to them and to try and understand whether there's a place for um, action on climate on the climate crisis in those communities, or whether it just it, it just sits outside their their. Um, uh, social structure i suppose um i don't know whether that's actually answered your question directly but uh... well we'll uh <laughs> you've, you've done a done a valiant valiant effort for a, a very very challenging topic certainly i think one where um there probably aren't any um substantial answers that that we can really reach um moving on then to the the last kind of um the, the, the last question for this segment um, and a, a bit of big news in the last few weeks earlier this month um, the UN released its fifth global biodiversity outlook um, which revealed that none of the um, and I'm going to murder this pronunciation the HE biodiversity targets um, for, for 2020 were actually met um, now get given that that of course the climate crisis is also well behind on its targets in many areas um, do you think there are any any lessons that can be drawn for the biodiversity agenda um, in terms of kind of getting the public behind action that could boost it? Lessons, lessons to be drawn from the climate, from the climate action um, process? I think my first thoughts on that is that I don't think the public were really aware that there was a biodiversity um, report being tabled this year. And the fact that the numbers are so horrific is the reason it's in the news and we've seen this over the years with all you know pretty much all environmental climate related <coughs> biodiversity related reports they get tabled and the general public it's of no news to the general public because one the governments don't want to share the the states don't want to share this information and what it is that they are committing us as their population uh, what they're committing to, <coughs> and uh, I, th I think that um, it, it's it's horrendous. Uh, I think it, we should be furious 
with our governments for for putting us in this position of uh, you know where I think there's probably a lot of people feel very despairing of any chance of improving any of these situations and again we can't uh, the effect to how to achieve this through through a bottom-up approach will always be stymied by what we can achieve within the constraints of our political and social system and so you know again it gets back to where we started with the conversation about education is get everybody everybody get them to to at least get a good a simple grip on where we are not it doesn't matter whether it, it's about the degrees or the parts per million in the atmosphere or things like that it's about we are at this turning point in uh needing to address possibly the biggest crisis that has mankind has ever faced and if we can't get the sense of you know I don't know what a good metaphor is but you know maybe there's a football metaphor that you know if Liverpool can win the championship after 30 years then maybe you know we can win the climate crisis championship next year something like that how do you change Poor the metaphor language? when you're talking to a spurs and a juventus fan but um, <laughs> but there we go yes absolutely no absolutely um uh, brilliant brilliant and important questions thanks alistair and to add to that i think this really does go back to that that idea of education and the need to inform um everyone because we've got lots of good work being done to to set targets and to um, well evaluate where we are with those targets but until people are made aware of where we're at and and what's going on I don't think we're going to rally up and actually see the action that we need although of course climate action will have knock-on effects on the biodiversity agenda so I, I think that um, certainly there is um, there are lessons to be learned from from the way that pub the public has gotten behind climate action. And I'm hopeful that we can see um, similar efforts to get behind the broader environmental crisis that we that we face. So perhaps the, the lesson there is that actually people have never heard on the 80 targets. Um, one, I think, for the um, for the pollsters to have a look at uh, if they if they haven't already, of course. Uh, thank you. Thank you, um, Alistair and, and Manvir uh, being put on the spot there, of course, um, for some uh, some excellent answers to some some difficult questions. I'm sure our, our listeners will agree that they're probably not questions to which we have the answers. Um, so so thank you. Thank you very much to you both there. Um, and we move on now to our, our final segment for today. Um, the news. We start off um, with the news. We start off with the news that no. And we'll move on now to our final segment of the day, the news. Chinese President Xi Jinping has announced that China will seek to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and fall to net zero by 2060 in a move that scientists have estimated could reduce warming by up to 0.3 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. 
The move comes a year before the UK hosts the postponed 26th Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, by which all parties are expected to announce more ambitious national contributions to emissions reduction targets. A new United Nations tracker has revealed that the vast majority of countries are failing women and girls in their response to the COVID crisis. The database examines countries' efforts to address violence, support unpaid care workers and strengthen women's economic security and finds that 42 countries had no policies to support women in any of these areas, with only 25 introducing measures in all three categories. The UK has only introduced measures in one. The National Union of Students and University and College Union have called on universities and the government to allow all students to return home and continue their learning online, should they wish to do so. The move comes as universities are widely criticised for not doing more to support and protect thousands of students, many living away from home for the first time, who have been forced to self-isolate after potential exposure to COVID-19. And now in the Global South, Manvir. Sudan's government is set to sign a landmark peace deal with rebel forces in a bid to end decades of civil war that has resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths. The agreement is set to cover several key issues, including land ownership, power sharing, and refugees and internal migrants. While some rebel groups are aiming to sign up to the deal, others are holding out until they feel their concerns have been addressed. Brazilian federal judge Maria Carvalho has halted plans by Bolsonaro's government to remove permanent protection zones around tropical mangroves and other coastal ecosystems. The judge granted an injunction against the plan on the grounds that the repeal of such rules violates the constitutional right to an ecologically balanced environment, with mangroves providing invaluable protection against climate change in addition to essential ecosystem services. And finally, G7 finance ministers are extending support for the debt suspension program announced in April for the world's poorest nations, which are particularly vulnerable to the economic shocks of the coronavirus pandemic. The Debt Service Suspension Initiative offered a freeze on debt service payments to the 73 poorest countries till the end of the year. With G20 finance ministers meeting on October 14th, there may be further debates about the long-term sustainability of the poorest nations that faced crippling debt long before the pandemic struck. And with that, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, folks. Thank you for joining us and special thanks once again to today's guest, Alistair, for sharing his thoughts with us all. Don't forget to keep an eye out for our next episode in two weeks' time. And in the meantime, check out our website, www.downtoearth.institute, for more on sustainability.